welcome to the Inside the Fence Line, a Central Maryland FCA small business podcast where we'll be talking to the thought leaders, business owners, and technical experts shaping the world of defense and intelligence. And I think that's what we lack a lot of sometimes is, is the courage. Like we have people who can set technical direction and maybe, you know, scope the project, which I believe is part of technical leadership in some capacity, but really that courage to say, hey, you're not performing well because that's going to affect the team and correct that. And sometimes it means removing a component of the team. That's hard. I'm your host, Jason Barber, and today I'm honored to have Dawn Ward, the Director of Tech Strategy and Growth at Blue Halo. Over the next half hour or so, you'll hear what it means to grow leaders, retain talent, and finally get that answer. What What is CNO? We always talk about it, but what really is it? What are the skills? How do we uh, get involved in that? And what should we be looking for in the talent? So let's get started, Dawn. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. I'm really excited to be here. So when you and I um, had our earlier conversation, the thing that stood out to me was people and technology. That was really how I felt your career was, right? Yeah. We, we talked a lot about your growth into the director and your focus. Um, but I think there's always like a starting place. So like what I'd like to hear is like, how did you get started? Like what what drove that passion to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. And I totally think that the position I'm in now is a culmination of my experiences and strengths and interests. So I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, so a little background, I am the first person in my family to go to college and graduate. Uh, I did electrical and computer engineering as my undergrad and information security uh, for my master's, both at Carnegie Mellon. I was in the scholarship for service, which brought me to NSA, which I'm super excited about. Um, I started at NSA, like most people, in a development program. And what was cool about it was I was in a development program that was very uh, loose with their requirements. So you can kind of chart your own path, which was great. So I started in an office where I was doing Java development. I joined that office specifically because I had done a lot of TAing in Java. I felt like that was where my strengths lie. And the mentors I had there said, you know, hey, if you finish the project we have for you, we're going to introduce you to reverse engineering. And at the time, I looked at their screen and saw lots of ones and zeros and thought, that looks really hard. I don't want to do it. Um, but I did end up doing it. I ended up loving it. And I was able to then thread reverse engineering through my remaining tours um, to get sort of a depth in that area and then a breadth across different technologies. Um, after the development program, I settled in a crypt organization. So I was doing reverse engineering and some crypt analysis. Super cool. Uh, I eventually transitioned into doing reverse engineering on mobile. And about seven years into my career, I became the first mobile lead for the crypto organization. So I'm going to stop right there and just say the permanent office that I was in kind of shaped, I think, what we'll end up talking about later, my view of what the perfect organization looks like. Because when I wanted to get into that as an intern, they had a huge waiting list. When I finally did get into it as an intern, I wanted to stay permanently and they had zero spots because they had zero attrition. I was able to fortunately stay because somebody retired and that was kind of how they got open spots. People retired. And that's, you know, when I think about like what we're trying to create in every organization, we want to have no open positions, no attrition and a waiting list of people who want to join our company. Right. Um, and so I think about that organization as sort of a model and we can talk about, you know, that later. Yeah. Definitely. So um, mobily, that was my first sort of tech leadership aside from mentoring and branch. 
And it was great because it was a very nebulous position. It wasn't well-defined. Um, I was able to go out into basically the crypto organization recognized that mobile was something that we should pay attention to. The wider organization was, you know, actively involved and they wanted to be more involved with solving quote, the mobile problem. So I was able to go out um, and represent my organization, talk to others, figure out what they were doing and then find the gaps of where the crypt work could fit in, which is, you know, very important. And so I was able to form lots of relationships and connections and sort of scope the responsibilities of that position. But I also got some insight into leadership at the agency and I was serving at the alpha plus two level in that capacity. And what I saw was kind of discouraging. Um, The machine was sort of so big that even at the alpha plus two level, it was hard to make an impact. And so, you know, I want to make an impact in my career and I want to make an impact in the organization that I work for. So I sort of decided that I needed to go back to being technical because there wasn't a level of leadership that I could aspire to where I would be able to make that impact. That's how I felt, you know, being a civilian then. So at at the government, you can't kind of go backwards, just, you know, go purely technical. So I left the government to become a contractor. I joined um, a small company called Intellisys. And um, it's worth pointing out that at the time, you know, I've got reverse engineering, vulnerability research, tool development, low level, you know, C kernel system development. Um, Not necessarily I am the unicorn, but when we talk about finding unicorns, those skill sets are what we're looking for, right? Um, So I had lots of offers, which was great and flattering. I actually took the offer from IntelliSys, which was $20,000 less than the offer from Raytheon. And that's worth pointing out too, because we'll talk about that later also. Um, So I joined a program called Hurricane Fan also on the mobile team, and I was just doing technical work. About seven years into that, we were acquired by um, a venture capital firm that put together Polaris Alpha. And at that point, I became the tech lead for Hurricane Fan. So now I'm in charge of, so I'm partially doing, you know, execution work on, on the task. And then I'm also responsible for maintaining the technical health of the contract, working with our stakeholders and hiring. And then a little bit later after that, I became the technical director for Polaris Alpha on their offensive cyber operations, you know, division or business unit or whatever. And um, probably about a year or a year and a half after we became acquired by Parsons. So through that transition, what I found myself doing was sort of straddling the fence again between execution and leadership. And at the same time, advocating as we went through those transitions for why it was so important to do things differently to retain this amazingly niche and experienced talent that we had in, you know, the reverse engineers and the vulnerability researchers and the people who can write this, you know, sophisticated small pieces of code that help us, you know, accomplish a mission. And that's my path. So that was very interesting. I mean, you you said a couple of things in there um, and impact seemed like a key thing for you. Um, But one thing I wanted to ask is, your contractor experience, you went from a small business to a larger, to even a larger business. Um, what is the ground truth on that? I mean, it, it sounds like in your your case, <laughs> I hear opportunity, right? I mm-hmm. hear opportunity on these larger companies. What is your experience? Because I think a lot of folks get intimidated or get nervous when they're in a small business and it gets acquired, or people might be even intimidated to go to a small business. But what is your experience going from a small to a large? Was it beneficial? Is it something to be scared about? Was there new opportunity? What's your thoughts on that, though? Oh, that's a great question. So I think that my advice for anyone who's in that situation where they're at a small and suddenly get uh, acquired by a big 
is to see it as an opportunity for new opportunities. So a lot of us join small companies. We're not looking to, you know, advance a ladder because there doesn't exist one um, or do different things because you really just join that company to do the technical work. But now when you become part of a bigger company, that technical work is still there and you can still do it. But there's new opportunities to, you know, get involved with proposal writing or, you know, maybe advance a chain or become a technical director. And I actually found so I sort of stumbled into that. Right. But I actually found that that was very beneficial for me, I didn't know that I was looking for it, but I enjoy being um, in those capacities. On the flip side, I will say that it's very difficult for a big company to, I'm going to air quote here, create a small company feel because that's what they all say. I said difficult, not impossible. So, so let's go down that path a little bit because I know one of your passion points is growth and leadership and retention. Yep. Um, so for me, I've always struggled with what culture is in our industry. Yeah. So, I mean, what are you doing to grow culture? And, and and I would actually say, don't maybe give a little bit of in your current role, what are your responsibilities? Because I think we had touched on this when you and I had talked before and how you're focused on retention and growing culture and working with your employees. So tell me a little bit what you're doing. And then I want to hear what are you doing to actually shape the culture and like, how are you, you know, working with your employees in that capacity. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I mentioned when I was at, you know, through that transition between Intellisys, Polaris Alpha and Parsons, that one of the things I found myself doing, which is very well suited to my personality, which is somewhat assertive, is advocating for these folks, right? The, on the business side, you really want to grow the programs, which means that you have to have a strong culture in order to do that. The small companies achieve that sort of organically because the leadership has a vision. They sort of execute that, but they have full control because it's small. So um, I joined Blue Halo in December. And one of the conversations, actually uh, the main point of the conversations that we had was where they are as a company. So they just, you know, venture capital back, just took a bunch of small companies and put them together. And now they're trying to grow. They're at the perfect and they deliberately chose small companies that had great cultures. So they understand the value. The problem is when you get bigger and as you grow, you have to find a way to scale that culture. So now you have to be a little more deliberate about defining what you want your culture to be and then putting like processes and expectations in place to make sure that it's executed. Um, and I think you can do it. But again, you, in a bigger company, you have to be proactive about it and deliberate versus a small company where it just happens organically. So you asked, what is culture? Here's my definition. And this is what I think is worth drilling down on when you have a transition and people say, I just want the small co company feel or I want a small culture. I don't believe that people in general want to just work at a company that has a certain number of people. Like if I get over 50, I'm out. Right. I don't think that's what it is. It's that in a smaller company, I know that there's one person that I can go to that will solve my problem. Right. I don't need to go to 15 different people or go to some disconnected resource. I can go to the decision maker and solve my problem. So I think that's one thing. Um, the second thing is I've developed a relationship with decision makers. And so I have the trust that they have my best interest in mind. So that is a big that makes a big difference when there are missteps, things go wrong because that happens. But if I trust that you have my best interest in mind, my perspective on what went wrong is much different. And I think it's worth noting, especially for bigger companies that are doing the acquiring, that as soon as you do that, there's just these stereotypes around what it means to work at a, a big company. Things like I'm going to be seen as just a number. 
Well, now you're taking that you have my best interest in mind and polarizing it on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. And so it's worth like understanding, addressing and proactively trying to change that narrative. But then the third part is that you feel a sense of community with a small company. Right. And that can be different things, events, development. I mean, however you've cultivated, but you feel connected. So it's not just a company you work for. And it's ironic because we've actually gone through um, some feedback sessions, which we can talk about later uh, with some of our folks. And we actually have people who never attend the events for various reasons, but it matters to them that we still have them. One of the questions we asked was, you know, what, what should we continue to do that we did great um, at these legacy companies? And that was one of the things that is so interesting to me because you're not attending, but it says something to you about what company we are that we're having it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And um, I kind of want to go, you had mentioned something earlier about the hierarchy of needs, and mm -hmm. I found that um, incredibly interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, I think, and you can correct me here, Dawn, but I, I think that kind of shapes some of your view on culture and, and retention and building, um, working with your employees. So can you go right. over what that is and, and you know how yeah. you're implementing it? Definitely. So um, two factors, right? We've all heard of the great resignation people are looking for, especially because of COVID, their right fit, right? And so how do we define what that is? But even in this industry where, you know, again, if that unicorn is looking for a job, there are no shortage of options. Even for a given contract, there's at least 15 companies they can go to, right? And so how do we distinguish ourselves and, you know, stand out from the crowd? And I think the, the hierarchy of needs gives us a way to hit on all of the different psychological areas that cause people to make a decision, right? We've all heard you decide based on emotions and that is absolutely true. And especially when you're making major life decisions like changing jobs. Um, and so I believe that if a company, and we're doing this, right? Look at all of the levels of the hierarchy and needs. What I would recommend is that you map what you're currently offering to them because it's much more than benefits. And what sort of shapes this is I've worked with awesome, super experienced, um, very expert in their field level people who, you know, if they come online right now, I will almost do anything to get in, get them onto my program or into my company. They want more than just the highest paycheck. And quite frankly, right now, I think in our industry, especially benefits and salary are sort of commoditized, right? There's not a big difference in those things from one company to the next. So now you got to offer something different. But people want, and at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. That means I am my best self. So the closest we can get to helping our employees be their best self in the professional setting, I think we'll get more loyalty, more employee engagement, more referrals, and more sort of branding. I mean, that's your branding, right? The stories that your employees tell about how great it is to work at your company is your real branding. So let's go into attraction and um recruiting them. You had mentioned in mm -hmm. an earlier conversation that you viewed there was two groups of candidates. Mm -hmm. um, can you elaborate on that? And then how are you attracting those? Well, I, I'm going to put a two-part question in there. Should yeah. we be attracting both of those groups? And if so, how how are you attracting those groups? That's right. Um, mm, this is going to be contentious. People are definitely going to disagree with that. So here are the two groups, I think. There's one group of people who are solely looking for the highest salary or total comp. I would say salary, highest salary, highest base salary. Second um, group are the people who want to be paid competitively. Definitely, you know, definitely that, but also are looking for more. 
whether it's they want to grow in a certain area or they want to be able to help others grow, whatever it is, right? That self-actualization, they're looking for that. Should we try to attract both? Um, my gut says no, right? Um, but I think you have to choose. So I don't think that you can concurrently try to attract both. So you either have to choose that you're going to be the company that is going to try to offer the highest salary and beat everybody else on salary alone, because that will dictate what you do internally. Or you're going to be the company that wants to find those people who want more. And I would argue everyone should be that company. And here's why. The people who are in that second bucket generally are also the ones that can help you then grow others, which, you know, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, they're also the ones that are going to be loyal to your company because they care about more than just the high salary. The people who want the highest salary, you're always at risk of some other company coming in and saying, hey, I can offer you 10000 more. And that's scary, right? Because we're going to make an investment in you. Um, so I would argue, no, we're not going to go after both. Um, and so the second part of your question was, how are we doing that? So here's the crux of every everything that I believe. Turn inward, right? In this space, this is the situation. If there's that unicorn looking for a job, even if recruiters cold call them, we'll call it cold email them, whatever, um, almost guaranteed the first thing they're going to do is find somebody that they know that works at this company and ask them, hey, what is it like to work at your company? Because remember, they've got a, a, a lot of offers. You can't possibly vet all of those companies. So you're going to decide which ones you want to even give attention to. And if that person responds with, mm, if it's even a hesitation, well, you can get wiped out really quickly, right? But if that person says, wow, it's amazing here. Like, I cannot believe how much I love working here. Or let me just tell you the story about, you know, this unique thing happened to me. You know, my, my kid was sick, like really sick. And let me tell you how this manager went above and beyond to take care of my family in this situation. Like those stories, it's big or small, you know, Wow, my manager just showed up at my my desk with a birthday surprise. I didn't even know they knew my birthday. Like big and small, that is what defines your culture. Um, everything that everybody in your company does every day and every moment is what defines your culture. And the things that happen the most consistently and can be predictable is what will be talked about, right? Good or bad. And no, that's 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 very insightful. Um, I, I I'm kind of come up with it. Well, you might already have a term. It almost feels like you're building kind of ambassadors for your company. Right oh, I love there. that. And and, and that kind of leads in, into where I'd like to go with the conversation about growing leaders, because mm -hmm. I could see that you could view these investors as sort of providing some form of leadership. Um, so your your journey is a little interesting because you went from a very technical background, a, mm -hmm. a heavily technical background, one of the more challenging technical areas, I'd say, into a very people facing, people focused. Yeah. Do you find that? I, you know, I think in our industry, it's often there's the, it's not controversial, but there's a, a little debate. Do you find that strong technical individuals can be successful managers, leaders, people managers, people leaders? Um, I do. And I think that when you get the right ones, they're the best because they understand both sides. Um, what I found is that it's hard to context switch between especially doing very, very technical work to leadership. And part of the reason is because technical work is very, okay, this is a heavily distilled summary, very one and zero, very black and white, right? Obviously not necessarily true, but it is. Leadership is sort of more fluid, right? I, be, I believe that the best leaders are really good problem solvers. And what I've been telling, you know, our leaders are, we've got business rules and we've got, you know, policies, 
we need to figure out how we get creative within the context of those. You know, nobody likes to hear, well, we just don't do that here, right? How much can I get? How close to solving your problem can I get within the context of the business rules? And that's what you want to hear. And that's what builds that trust where they feel like you really do have their best interest in mind. So I believe that you can build them, but I believe it has to be deliberately exposing them to leadership principles, helping them understand the context in which they're using them, um, and then encouraging them to make leadership sort of development a lifelong pursuit. If they're going to do that, it's sort of you're constantly learning, constantly ingesting um, information and, and tailoring it to your environment. So I'm a small business owner. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I literally am, but also I'm playing a role here. <laughs> and I'm trying to find these leaders that you're mm-hmm. talking about. What, what am I looking for, Dawn? What, what, what am I saying? Hey, that's the person that I need mm. to grow to make a leader in the company. That's a great question. Um, I'll answer that. But before I do, one of the mistakes that people make is finding is identifying the best technical performer and assuming they'll be the best leader. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, my general gauge is the people who are coming to you and saying, Hey, this doesn't feel right. Here's a solution. Those would be the people I would pay attention to because they already have sort of that mindset of seeing where things could be improved and, and not just complaining, right. And considering how we can improve them. That would be my first, my first, um, indication that they're the right people to try to develop and grow. So that kind of goes back to your problem solving mentality. You're looking for the folks that can mm-hmm. identify a problem and come to you and solve it. Okay. So now I have a person that comes and, and they're a little more vocal about a certain issue. What What are you doing at that point? What's the next steps to encourage them and to grow them? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, at that point you've got to have a coach or a mentor for them. So we recently kicked off a, a, an emerging leaders program where we're starting with strength-based uh, leadership. And I am a big proponent of this. Gallup is one of my favorite resources because with all of us, right, it's so much easier to do things that we're naturally good at. It's so difficult to try to strengthen areas that we're not, right? We get this negative feedback because we keep failing. I do this all the time, trying to wake up early. Um, but when we can just operate in our strength, we thrive and we are fulfilled, right? It's like sort of you can get into that zone where you can produce for a long time. And so that's sort of the foundation. And then just layering on principles. So, for example, things like how do we influence without authority? Because we're contractors. Right. Um, But one of the things I think is necessary is we're also the, the experts, the technical experts, and we're relied on as such. So how do you build the relationships with the decision makers so that you can influence more of the decisions? in the right way. And then that ties back to retention too, because a big aspect of why some people are leaving is frustration with, you know, different things that are happening that, they, that are outside of their control. So I'm a, I'm a nitty gritty kind of person. I like to get down into the weeds. Oh, so, yeah. so, so walk me through, you have this person, hmm? he's a vocalized, um, he or she has vocalized, you know, some, some issues that they think improve, that they need improvement. You want to grow them. Are you giving them responsibility out of the gate? Are you finding a small team or project for them to lead? What is the first thing that they actually feel that they have the ability to lead that they have mm. ownership for? That's a good question. I actually love the idea of doing that, especially if it's not super high stakes. As long as you as the business owner or their mentor is willing to give them real feedback. And that is so crucial because I see a lot, we, you know, we, we just put people in positions and kind of hope for the best. 
we watch them flounder. And if we believe that everybody wants to do their best, then we have to believe that they're just missing some aspect of education. And so we should have those conversations with them to help them improve. And that is how you develop them, your relationship with them and how you teach them to develop others, right? Because you want this snowball effect of leadership and to build sort of a leadership culture. And honestly, that goes back to the retention piece. That's why I'm so passionate about leadership because, um, so like John Maxwell says, everything rises and falls on leadership. I truly believe that that is it. Um, you can retain a lot of people by having good leaders and you can force people out of your company by having poor leaders. No, I, I agree with that. That's a very, um, the feedback thing is something, I think you've hit a lot of interesting points as you were talking about that. So. Uh, let's end this kind of part. I, I want to understand what makes a good te technical leader. What makes a good people leader? Like, what are the traits that you're looking for? You've identified one. You know, vocalizing. Um, you know, identifying problems, bringing solutions. Are there other traits that you feel a good leader has? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that they have to have empathy, right? I think everybody will say that, and the empathy sort of allows them to connect with your problem in the way that makes them want to help you solve it in a creative way, right? Um, I also think they have to be courageous because leadership can be hard, especially, right, if you have a team that's doing everything well, you really don't need a leader. You need a leader when things are going wrong or when things need to course correct. And that takes a lot of courage to be able to do what's necessary. Um, and I think that's what we lack a lot of sometimes is is the courage. Like we have people who can set technical direction and maybe, you know, scope the project, which I believe is part of technical leadership in some capacity, but really that courage to say, hey, you're not performing well because that's going to affect the team and correct that. And sometimes it means removing a component of the team. That's hard. So courage. Um, and then just the ability to communicate well, right? That, that kind of ties everything together, the ability to communicate well. Courage. I haven't heard that one. I, I really, that's a good one. I really like that. You, you summarized that very well. Thank you. Um, so again, let's go back to the very beginning. In my head, I had you as a people and a tech person, and I think you've gone down both paths. Um, personally, one area that I've always been confused about is when <laughs> we say CNL, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where your career started. And I think yep. that you, you know, that's one of the more challenging areas in our industry. Yep. Um, both to understand, mm -hmm. both to find the skill set and both to work in. And I think I'd like to understand from someone who's been in there. Mm -hmm. Let's start at the very beginning. Like what what is CNL? Like what does it even stand for? What does it mean when people say CNL? Uh, go ahead. Right. Yeah. So CNO as an acronym stands for computer network operations, but it is a heavily overloaded term in my opinion at this point. Kind of like cyber, right? Um, so for the purposes of this discussion, I will say that when we talk about CNO in this community, we are typically talking about this offensive skill set um, that people need to develop tools to you know, accomplish the mission. That's not necessarily what CNO means entirely, but I do think that when we talk about you know, finding the unicorns and getting the best rates and what the community is lacking, that's what we're talking about. And in terms of skill set, we are looking at reverse engineering, I would say hardware and software, um, vulnerability research, which is not the same as reverse engineering, and then low level tool development. So being able to develop something, uh, you know, using a, a, a 
language like C or even maybe in the architecture language of the assembly itself, you know, something very small, tailored, stealthy, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's um, it's challenging because, and I, I think you would agree, it's challenging because a lot of the curriculum that's popular right now mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of us have degrees, a lot of folks in computer science and computer engineering are coming through universities or programs and you're taught a certain technical stack or right. a set of languages that are a little different. Um, so how, you know, you kind of talked about your story in, in your tour at NSA. People that are listening, how how can they really get started? If you take, and I'll give you an example. If you take a person that's going through a traditional, modern, undergraduate degree program where they're probably mm -hmm. learning Java and object-oriented programming, how are they able to transition into what you're talking about? Because assembly, C, C++ is not something that's pushed as much. Right. Yeah, and that's unfortunate too, especially because there are, now there are so many cyber programs in academia where there weren't when I was coming up. Um, and I think some things are getting lost. So to grow people, I think you need to, though, unfortunately, they're kind of at a disadvantage because what you really need, what I would say is the foundation, especially if you're taking somebody out of college, is a true understanding of the computer system, which you do not get when you work at that high of a level because so many things are abstracted away from you. So they really need to understand how the computer works. What happens when you actually compile something? How does that get translated into machine code? And then how does the machine act on that code, right? Um, so assuming they have a good understanding of computer systems and that they can develop in something like C. And if they don't, you just gotta, you gotta give them that. But there are a lot of external resources that are well suited to develop that skill set, right? Um, what they need on top of that is somebody to work with. Because what I've seen in so what benefited me through the program, uh, through the development program, what I've seen happen to others that have gone through it is you are expected to learn in every office and they give you a dedicated mentor. So you're learning from somebody that's experienced. You're working on programs or projects where right? you might be reverse engineering something. When you get stuck, they can help you learn how to overcome that challenge, which is what you need on your own. But when you go through, you know, courses that are designed to teach you reverse engineering, they miss a lot because you don't have to struggle. Right. That you kind of get the answer. And, and of course, in that moment, you're like, of course, I'll recognize this again. That's just not how it works. Um, and so on and on our side, especially when I was hiring, there's people who are going through those programs and they really are limited in their reverse engineering capacity because they learn how to throw things in something like Ida or Ghidra. And, as long, you know, those tools are powerful so they can do things for you and you have no idea what's going on. But as soon as that doesn't work, they don't know what to do. So you need to have like a program set up where you have an experienced person sitting with them to help them through. I really don't believe that you can learn reverse engineering the way that you need to to do this work on your own. So how are you finding new talent in this space? What are you looking? I mean, going back to similar to what we talked about with finding leaders. I mean, are there cues that you're looking for? Are there traits or certain things that um, you're trying to find when you recruit these these talented individuals? Yeah. So, um, I mean, recruiting right now is hard, right? The community is small and dwindling. And so my approach is to try to grow our own. That's what I think the key is. Develop your own. And in order to do that, like I just said, you have to have somebody internally to help them through and develop. Those are those experienced people. And in order to keep the experienced people, you have to engage them, which means you have to have a whole host of activities in your company that are designed to foster that engagement. And that's sort of where the strategy part comes in.
yeah, you kind of loop that back. Um, <laughs> if you go, no, but going back to your retention and, you know, showing value, bringing value to the employees, showing that you care, having a growth program for an area they want to go. Um, I can see how that all ties together. So in traditional software engineering, um, one of the areas that a lot of people are focused on is the methodology to build software using things like Scrum and Agile and that life cycle. And I think that's uh, easier for folks to understand. Right. But in the CNO space, is that life cycle, is there that, you know, steps that are involved? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so most offices are asking the developers to do Agile. Um, I usually call it Agile-ish. I mean, it's kind of like a, you know, it's, it's not anybody listening to this who does this work will cringe when, you know, I say, yes, we kind of do agile. Um, we don't really, right. We have some offices of two week sprint. Some people incorporate some elements of agile and scrum into the workflow, but really the reverse engineering doesn't lend itself well to that, right? You don't have a well-defined problem because you don't know what the solution is going to be until you already have the solution. And then it doesn't make sense to do it. Um, but they do have some aspect of that with the different, um, Life, or life cycles or sprints or um, the product owner isn't really the same thing. So it, it's hard. Requirements aren't as well defined. Um, but yes, we are supposed to do agile. It's kind of interesting. You must have to have the right personality to work in that space, both from wanting to dig into the problem, mm -hmm. as you alluded to with the reverse engineering, but also it seems like you have to be a little more flexible in how you gather requirements and what you're oh, building. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The best the best people, you know, my ideal person would be able to take a loose requirement and kind of add their own context around it to produce the best solution. It's hard because sometimes you don't even get to talk to the stakeholders to ask them questions to refine the requirement. It, it's difficult and that's a challenge. But so it, right now it's June 22. And um, I think, I, you know, where do you see CNO? going and mm. what are some of the upcoming areas focus things that people could get ahead of that they should be learning they should be thinking about yeah, that definitely. would position them better yeah i definitely think um space is going to be a big industry so space is moving towards more software defined which means there's more code um to look at and more things changing so i would say space weapon systems um and really i would start looking at the metaverse right and part of it is the same things that happen in, I don't know, but the opposite of the metaverse is reality, I guess, are going to happen in the metaverse, but they're going to be identified differently. And how do we track targets and how do we understand how they're communicating? But the metaverse is going to change a lot of things. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting. Uh, didn't expect that one. That's a, that's, a <laughs> that's an area that would be interesting to look at. So actually, that's good. Can, if I don't if I can interject one, one thing, yeah. I think tech leadership really, especially in this well, actually, probably always involves an aspect of looking at the future and figuring out where things are going and how we need to fit in. As a company, I would expect my technical directors to be doing that so that we can continue to stay competitive and position ourselves well in terms of investment. So I'd like to wrap up the conversation and end on a, with an action, right? With okay. some mm -hmm. advice from Dawn. Yep. And uh, I'd like to hear two things. So you have an aspiring leader mm -hmm. that maybe has a technical background and you have an, a person that aspires to be a cno engineer okay and what is what is the action that that person well both of those individuals can take right now to go to go down that path so an aspiring leader i would say if 
they don't already have somebody who's trying to develop them, that they should look at their community, find a leader that is exhibiting qualities they want to exhibit and be proactive about establishing a mentoring relationship with them. That's what I would do. Um, and f- as far as CNO, hmm, I guess it just depends on where they are. If I would say if they don't already have the understanding of the computer system to pursue that. If they do, I would say find a company that is willing to invest in developing you and has uh, senior people to help you do that. That's good. That's good advice. And I would su- and, and I would assume that a company like yours would be the company that would help do that. Absolutely. Right? We would, <laughs> yes. So I always like to end with uh, a little bit of fun. I think people like recommendations, books, mm-hmm. TVs, podcasts. I think, uh, I think we get a lot from that. So I kind of told you this. So what, you know, I, I think you've mentioned a lot of things, John Maxwell, hierarchy of needs. And definitely you have a lot of different sources. So what do you recommend? What is something that you would recommend? Mm, I recommend so many things. Um, actually, I'm going to recommend a book. It's called Excellence Wins by Horst Schultzer, and I'm sure I messed his name up, but he's one of the founders of the Ritz-Carlton. The book is amazing. Um, It's an easy read, and it's a really good story, but it also highlights so many unique things and stories that a company can incorporate, that any of our companies can incorporate to achieve an excellence level of customer service. And in our industry, the customer is obviously the technical customer, but also our employees. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely a um, a new recommendation. I, I haven't seen that. It sounds like an interesting oh, great. book. Let me know if you read it. Yeah, definitely. So with that, Dawn, um, thank you. I mean, thank you for being part of the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for everyone for tuning in for another episode of Inside the Fence Line. Uh, be sure to check back next month for a new episode with uh, the next generation of thought leaders. And with that, thank you, Dawn. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to the Inside the Fence Line podcast. A special thanks to Devin McBride, Brenda McBride, Kirsten Miller-Jones, and the Central Maryland FCA chapter for helping to make this podcast come to life.